This is the Outstanding Advisor Podcast, the show that features outstanding financial advisors, advisors with an interesting story to tell. If you would like to be featured on the podcast, tell us why you are an outstanding financial advisor with an interesting story to tell. Send an email to oadvisorpodcast at gmail.com. That's oadvisorpodcast at gmail.com. And now, here's the host of the Outstanding Advisors Podcast, David Macchia. In today's episode, I speak with Gary Mettler, the man who bills himself as the annuity maestro. And that name fits the man. When it comes to traditional income annuities, few are more experienced and knowledgeable than Mettler. We share a wide-ranging discussion, including how a tragic life event can shape one's business perspective. Hi, this is David Macchia. Welcome to the Outstanding Advisor Podcast. I'm thrilled to have a special individual today, Gary Mettler. And let me tell you, Gary and I have never met in person, but I feel like I know Gary from so many interactions and debates and comments on LinkedIn. He's a frequent user of LinkedIn, as am I, and a, and a staunch defender of annuities, as am I. So, Gary, you, welcome. David. Very nice of you to invite me, actually. Oh, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you. So um, we're going to talk a lot about annuities. I know that's one of your favorite subjects. You are, after all, the annuity maestro <laughs> and author and okay, author. author yes. um, yeah. And um, so we'll talk about what all of that means. But I like history. Okay. And uh, I want to start with a little okay. bit of history. Let's start okay. at the beginning. Where were you born? I was born outside a small town in California, um, Bakersfield, Arvin area. And uh, I was raised in a farm family for many years. And the big thing I discovered about that was I never wanted to be a farmer when I grew up. So that was my big, big reveal of that whole experience. What kind of farming? Mostly row crop, you know, potatoes, wheat, milo, that type of thing. Yeah. So what was what was your childhood like here, your developing years? Uh, it was pretty middle class. You know, I was um, only child. Um, didn't have any siblings, so um, my parents were much older when I was birthed, and uh, it was just standard middle class. They really nothing um, uh, just notable about it, um, other than growing up in a farming area, which I think is somewhat notable mm -hmm. because, you know, as a young kid, you get a lot of responsibility handed to you at a very early age. Now, I, I think I got my first paycheck when I was thirteen. You know, formally. That really a real mm -hmm. paycheck. And of course, you know, farm labor yeah. is regulated differently <laughs> than any other kind of labor. Sure. So, you know, a lot of children working for even today, a lot of children work in farm labor because of that. But um, so it was it was tough, you know. Um, that that was tough, but it was expected. And it was now the norm. Even when I knew as a time as a child, um, all, all the boys and, and girls also worked, you know, at very early ages at different things, and you were just expected to do that. There wasn't a lot of distractions like there are today with today's children, 13, 14 years old. So for thrills, we'd go to the library or we'd go to the courthouse. That's what we did, you know, if we wanted some excitement. And I don't people th don't think about going to the courthouse to get excitement, but you know, we had a TV, but, it, you know, wasn't the kind of programming things you have today. So I didn't spend a lot of time at the library, courthouse, that type of thing, growing up, movie theaters. You know, so. so was it like eight o'clock Sunday nights watch Ed Sullivan? No, we did. We had certain shows we watched, you know, as a, as a kid. I remember watching um, Ed Sullivan was a biggie, you know, and um, uh, 
So yeah, we watched that and a couple of other Howdy Doody. Um, I don't remember Howdy Doody too much, but yeah, I, th- I think it was there. You know, you know. Yeah. The Lone yeah, Ranger. Yeah, yeah, obviously, sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard for people to comprehend today that they were three channels. Well, yeah, that's well what it was. It was just you know the TV, right. you know, with these gigantic boxes, and you just you know had tubes put in them, and you just pick up a single somewhere. You know, basically what it was. So. Yeah. I have a theory that society began to you know, turn into a bunch of segments <laughs> when cable TV came out and we went from three channels to right. 200. Yeah. Well, that changed some things. And then it, so, yeah. Yeah. We read for a lot. Sure. I read a lot so, of, um, you know, as a child, you know, that's for sure. Yeah. You know, so. So where did you go to high school? High school, a little school, high school um, called Highland High School in Bakersfield, California. And then after that, um, I actually attended a military academy. I attended West Point. Mm-hmm. For about a year, and um, I was exited out on a uh, knee injury that I had for many years. In fact, just recently had it fixed, not more than about six months ago. So all those decades that went by, I just finally oh. had it fixed. And then I mm-hmm. went to a school in Santa Barbara for a couple of years. Um, finished off with some background in um, economics and accounting was my formal study, you know. But I graduated in 1981 college eventually mm-hmm. and that was of course you know the heart of the great or one of the great recessions of all times we had so yeah. you know and because i had a farm family background you know i was amenable taking any job i could find you know i didn't really care i did all kinds of all kinds of stuff I worked in farms i did everything eventually moved to los angeles and then what happened was um i had always had an interest early on um in the stock market that's how it all started. Um, at one point, I attended a junior college first, and one of the professors there, as part of the requirement, made us subscribe to the Wall Street Journal. And I had never heard of the Wall Street Journal in, until then, right? And so I found this all extremely interesting. And so um, at one point in time, a- after this had happened, at one this point in time, well, I was just convinced that in the 1970s, you know, I was going to buy stocks, gold stocks. And my parents had a flying fit about this. But they made the mistake of saving money in my name. And so when I had to be 18, <laughs> against my parents' wishes, I took that money that I had supposedly been used for college, and I attempted to open a brokerage account in my small town. There were only three main brokers. It was a Dean Winter no longer around, um, E.F. Hutton and a Merrill Lynch. That was it. Now I got kicked out of every single office. No one would ever even talk to me because I was only 18. I could never, not like today, anyone could open an account, but was, I was not permitted. So I had to come back with, with one of my bosses that I worked, was working part-time for because he was 40. You know, he was considered to be the real adult, you know. But we opened a joint account mm-hmm. and all this money got spent on gold stocks. Of course, you know, one-off wonder, you know, I finance, I finance college basically. And so when I got out of college, I was very interested in, you know, financial markets. I became a stock, stock broker, you know, past exam. And that term is no longer used anymore, really. But um, started with a very small firm. And it was about 12 of us. So it was the world's, world's smallest broker dealer in Los Angeles. I had moved there to get work. And... Um, Lo and behold, you know, the president of the company calls me in and goes, 
you know, because we were, we were only doing bonds at the time, only only a bond broker. We get small pieces, you know, the new issue, doing new bonds. Yeah. And anyone in the bond market in the 80s was getting decimated. It was a terrible market because the interest rates kept Well, Gary, people people today would find it hard to believe that interest rates were 22%. Oh, yeah, that was common. It was, it was killing us. So the, the president of the company calls me, and this whole, all 12 people, this 12-person company, and asks me, because I was being mentored by a much older person on the, on the bond mm -hmm. desk, right? I would have a bond desk, which what it meant was an eight-foot coffee table with a dial phone. We had one monitor. <laughs> it was called a Quotron in those days. That's all we had. Yeah, Only one in the whole office. He asked if I knew what annuity was. I go, oh, yeah, I know what annuity is. <laughs> of course, I lied. <laughs> you know? I only knew what the textbook definition was. And so that helped, that's how it started. And then, you know, one thing led to another. And um, at that, th th in those days, you know, you weren't really thought very highly of if you sold an annuity. I mean, agents hated you. Securities brokers, you know, you, you know, you went to socially to meetings and things. You didn't even, even say what you did because it was looked that down upon, you know. You know, people, people today talk about this conflict between the investment advisor world and the insurance right. world it has a history that goes back a it long goes way. back a long way so this this all started at that point you know reagan reagan deregulated the industries and stockbrokers were deregulated a lot of them broke off because commissions were, were now being set lower and they went to these broker dealers which really were nothing until that happened and they became the stars you know, after deregulation occurred in the late 70s. And uh, when they left, you know, their big firms, they took their annuity clients with them, you know. And it all spread right. to the broker-dealers pretty much. And then um, from then on, it seemed like no matter what I did, no matter where I went afterwards, I, I mean, once I had some experience, once the employer, I found out I had some experience, well, oh, okay, we, well, we'll have you do this. So I, I always got assigned anything to do with annuities. And it's, it, it just, that's just the way it kind of fell. And as the years went by, um, I picked up experience in, um, you know, structure settlement industry, charitable gift annuity industry. Um, I worked from then eventually I moved, I worked for some home offices in New York. What was the first time? That was Jackson National Life. Um, Jackson, Jackson National Life in New York. Again, I kind of, you know, I moved to New York earlier and I wasn't working in a family of two. It was desperate for work. And so they were just coming into the state. And so what happened was the president was running around giving, you know, marketing presentations to brokers and uh, general agencies who hated them, by the way, because they were a direct, direct marketing company. So all the, all the New York general agents hated them. Anyway, so I, I came, so I just, you know, got, I got a notification because I had done Jackson National Life in California and I had produced a lot of premiums with them. And I said, oh, no, well, I'm just going to go. I'm going to go. I'm going to show up with a, with a resume. I'm just going to barge into this meeting. I'm going to shove it in front of this guy's face. I need to have a job. And that's what I did. <laughs> so I kind of barged in this whole thing. And um, he looked at it and then we met later. And eventually they, I was hired, you know, after a period of time. Um, I was the second person hired in the office, basically, is how new it was. And then that, that, that folded uh, a couple years later. They moved the jobs to Denver. And then immediately, I had gotten a job uh, with a company called Presidential Life. And, but, but by that time, I had already established a lot of connections in New York. 
you know, with distributors and general agencies and whatnot from Jackson. And so um, the next day we were laid off on a Friday and I was working on Tuesday because what happened was um, presidential life, their profile at the time, 60% of all their annuities they did were media annuities. And that was my speciality was in media annuities. And so it was, just, it was just a really good fit because I had so much expertise in that one area. And that was such a big part of their business model that it just seemed like a natural, you know? So um, mm -hmm. that held for years until um, they were acquired later on, 2013. And then I just moved down to Florida and uh, I also was much older at that time. And um, again, the market was soft because of the interest rates with the new industry. Not a lot of home offices were hiring. And the media annuity expertise in home offices, just like it is in consumers and financial advisors, you know, there's not a lot of demand for that kind of, you know, expertise. The home office level, there's only a few carriers that can even potentially entertain even probably even having a position for me. So I just left, um, moved to Florida, started writing and, um, you know, became, basically became an agent. Um, so I do some odd work in that area. And, and even though I'm not a big producer in that area, I, I feel like I have a big message. So, you know, I tend to be very consistent about that message, you know, on LinkedIn and other places. And, um, it's unfortunately some of these older contracts and the media annuity, David, is an, a really old contract form. It's the oldest form. Can let, let me let me okay. interrupt and, and, and just comment that a lot of the things that drive us to believe what we believe come out of real life experiences. And I know that you had a devastating real life I had several experience. Several of them, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I'm sure that that helped form how you think right. about these okay. issues, especially about Well, that's annuities. true. Okay, so going back a little further to about 94, um, what had happened was that I had sold, you know, deferred annuities and media annuities. And um, I decided in December 93 that I would go into business with a um, financial advisor. His wife is an enrolled agent and a mortgage broker. So mm -hmm. we threw in $25,000 and I had two kids. Yeah, it was tough. I threw two kids at the time and I was breaking off from my current employer and we did all the, we did this big investment in December. Yep. <laughs> and then in January, we got wiped out because what? The Northridge earthquake, right? I was living in that area and no, a, that a lot of people... A lot of people listening will have no familiarity. Yeah, we're north of today. Hit California. Will you start start from the beginning right. and take so us through? So what happened that. was, um, anyways, this is what happened. So um, Northridge earthquake was a huge seismic event that happened. Um, it was basically occurred in the San Fernando Valley, which is a little bit of maybe um, north um, west of Los Angeles. A huge pop. I mean, a really big density population. So when that hit, um, it was like it was in a rural area or something. I mean, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. You know, they the damages were so widespread that there are hundreds, there are thousands of houses lost, businesses destroyed. I mean, it was really a, a bad time. You know, and the only a few people were killed, I think, because um, it happened on Martin Luther King holiday early in the morning hours. 
four o'clock in the morning. So I, I went to details of it, but it was, it was pretty brutal. You know, the time it happened, um, the morning, the hour it happened, uh, was really scary when that went on. It was like, it was like a freight train going through your home and we couldn't get to the kids. They were all the doors in the house completely destroyed. Um, couldn't get them in room. Couldn't even get out of the house really had to break down. Um, so your kids are in the house, but you couldn't, we reach, couldn't them. reach them because what happened was, um, what we, you know, most parents will, will like close the door or maybe leave the door open a crack, you know, when the kids are asleep. Yeah. So when yeah. the earthquake hit, what happened was it damaged the house so badly that the whole house shifted and the door frames shifted and tweaked the door. There's, there's no way you could open yeah. those doors. So we had to basically break down the doors to get the kids out. And then, um, thank God, uh, you know, we weren't really injured ourselves. I mean, a lot of people had, you know, kept like mirrors and glass in bedrooms. Mm-hmm. When that all broke, yep. um, it was on the floor and people didn't think about it. Just jumped out of bed and a lot of people slashed their feet. There was blood everywhere, all our neighbors and, um, smoke burning fires everywhere, gas, everywhere in the house. I mean, this sense of natural, we, everyone, everyone, all the bedrooms were upstairs and had ripped the staircase off the wall. It was, it was, we were really nervous. Even going down the staircase was, was a trick. Just didn't get downstairs again. It was unstable, you know, and we finally got through the patio because if we couldn't access the, and all the cars were destroyed, the cl- large collapse on the cars. And, um, but I wasn't the only one. This happened to a lot of, this happened to thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people this happened to all, all right. over. Were the kids they were okay? okay? They were scared. I don't think they really remember it too much anymore. They're all adults now, but at the time, um, it was really scary because they were, you know, flipping out. We couldn't get to them, and uh, it was pretty panicking at the time. Now, this was a massive it was event. A massive event, yeah. yeah. And though it's, well, I tell people all the time, the cameras were there for a week or two weeks, and you know, we we lived in a National Guard tent for a while. Again, you know, mm-hmm. didn't have any money. Why? Because everything works electronically. Yeah. Bank cards weren't nothing could work. We only had the money on you with whatever cash you had. It's all you had for a long time. So you know to get food, we had to get food stamps. Drive into the Mojave Desert about eighty miles away, pick up food stamps, bring them back, exchange them. Um, we lived in a you know national card tent for about two or three weeks. For about two weeks before we could find housing somewhere. You know, all, all the rental stock was destroyed. There was nowhere to rent. It was just, it was really a bad time, David. It was, and the financial, and I tell people financially what happened, you know, was just the start of it. it. You know, what ended up happening was that I, I ended up working for a firm that did litigation work, but economic mm-hmm. work, not legal mm-hmm. work. And so our big thing were, were damages that happened to people that, um, that they were under legal advisement to do something, but they had some kind of damages and they're trying to, trying to make up with their damages. For example, my big yep. thing became divorce work because I had such an annuity background and people's pensions are like annuities. It wasn't much restriction for me. Um, sure. I start, did a lot of divorce work. And again, I tell people the time is that what happened was it put such a strain on society, our local society, that you had a huge increase in divorce, a huge increase in bankruptcies. I mean, there wasn't enough attorneys. People, attorneys were coming in from outside the state. 
the same thing with contractors, you know, you couldn't find a contractor. There was no building materials. It was just a shortage of everything. So yeah. as society came and unraveled, the instant the divorce probably jumped, you know, hundred percent at least. So that was a lot of business. You know, my firm was raking a lot of business on, on doing pension and evaluations for divorce. And I did thousands of them. I probably did 3000 of them, 3000 divorce cases in five years. I did a lot of them. David. That's a lot, a lot of, of a lot of cases. Yeah. And then, and so would you have to, would you have to calculate the present? Yeah, we had a method, uh, we had a method of doing benefit. that. And then we would determine the marital interest and that was used to, you know, help divide the pension or maybe for negotiations to divide. You don't have to do this with 401k. No, but there were, there was also issues with them also, you know, so it was all, it was only any kind of right. um, retirement plan. Um, it was mostly pensions because there's the, the, the hardest ones. To yeah. Do. I'm making the point that the world used to have pensions. Right. Well, people are better protected. It was a better world. You know, people actually, and I, had, yeah. I just did a video on this recently. People were shocked. I said, people who have pensions, actually, this is, I try to point out some of these things in these older contracts, older older retirement plans, is because you had a lot of protections with those that you, you don't have anymore with savings accounts. You, those protections are gone now because people don't want to talk about them or don't want to do them anymore. But people typically have pensions or meet annuities you know, they came out so much better at the end of the day after their you know, life-changing event than people who just had savings plans. You know, most savings plans, you know, are eviscerated when these kind of things happen to them, people. But you know, pensions aren't... You know, I always, make the, I always make the point, Gary, that your standard of living is a function of your income, not right. your savings. And that's what saved them. It was their future income. And, that, and, and because of how the governments look at these things and how they're treated... Right. Um, they actually have, you actually have better protections with that, you know, and it's kind of hard to explain to people, but, um, there are a lot of instances where you have much better government support for supporting these kinds of contracts for owners of those kinds of pensions and than people who just have savings accounts. And so I try to make, I try to point that out on some of these older forms, David, that there are all these various things that there are people are missed because what happens on the older forms the problem is, David, is they don't fit modern business models. You know, so that's right. the problem. And so you don't get a lot of support for that because um, it's just hard for people to incorporate that in a agents and also um, financial advisors in into how they work today. These older forms, contract forms, older pensions and immediate annuities were just designed at a time uh, for, for various social purposes that, you know, the current advisor community, it doesn't fit in with their agendas, you know? And so, you know, that's my big message I try to get across to people. And when I explain that to consumers, most of them understand it. You know, they go, oh, okay, that makes sense to them, you know? So, um, well, it's just, yeah, it's just logical. logical. So it's, it's just too bad, but, um, uh, 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 no, I, that's. So, so let me a question, you know, and, Social Security, everybody loves to collect their check from Social Security. Who's collecting? It's it's a big system of old right. age annuities. People love a paycheck. There's nothing more secure in retirement than a certain monthly That's paycheck. Right. Given that annuities are the only financial vehicles that can do that, why do you think people, many people, are so skeptical of annuities? 
Well, in my opinion of it is, I think the skepticism comes from industry modern attempts to turn them into some kind of investment savings vehicle. And that happened for various reasons. I'm always critical about the industry about that. But there actually was a self-preservation issue going on for them back in the late 70s, 1980s, when these things all came about. The contracts we have today are our children for the contracts that were first developed in the 70s, late 70s and early 1980s. Traditional annuities have been around, they, they think as far as back as the, the, the Egyptian and Byzantine empires. You know, they were the yeah. old, old contract forms. And there was an attempt by the industry uh, just because of competitive issues. You know, think deregulation was happening. Things were happening. And the industry decided to kind of go down the savings account road where they would just become mutual asset managers, mutual funds, you know, stocks and bonds, just like other people were. And that's how they, that's how they elected to compete. I, I firmly believe that if people in the newly business in the 1970s, 19, early 1980s had any idea it would turn out this way, the way we have it today, I think they'd be rolling in their graves, basically. I, but this is, I agree this is with what's that come to, and this, this is the legacy we have. And I think that the modern people being let down is because we're attempting to do these things that traditionally, prior to 19, late 19, we never did. But in modern people's modern memories, all you think about is what's happening today, this year, 10 years ago. And again, um, right. it's been difficult, again, because we decided to do that. Well, now we got to compete against these, all these other vehicles out there that are savings investment devices. And that competition creates animosity, you know, it creates conflicts. It's, you know, we're kind of out of our lane a little bit. And it's no surprise that the competition still, after all these years, since the 70s and 80s, doesn't like it, you know. But that's how we decide to do that as an industry. Um, but the, the problem I have with it, David, is that I think we've done that to the degree that we've completely abandoned the old stuff. We, there, there's a complete abandonment almost of the old form contracts. And I'm very worried about that. Well, you know, let me, let me just re- remember, and you, you'll appreciate this. When I came into the industry as a, as a young, young life insurance agent, it was the life insurance industry that controlled mm-hmm. the pension true. Yes. world. There was no 401k, but through a series of, I think, like you indicate, poor decisions, they ceded everything away to the investment management industry, their prominence. Yeah, I just, I don't, you know, again, I think it was a survival issue. I think they just decide, you know what, we just can't, we need to compete at this, at this game here. And... I don't think they thought long term. You know, they were looking at what was happening well, that, in the immediate four or five years and how they. Yeah, and that's where that's where I referenced the poor decision making by failing to think. I don't think they'd ever thought it would come to come to this way, though. I, I have a hard time believing that because the things that are happening today in the nudie world, I almost think they're bizarre. Actually, I, I you know, it's to the degree where it's almost it's it's, and that's really hurting us. I think, um, you know, I, I just. Uh, so give me a, give me an example or two. Well, I mean, the rise of I mean, you know, a savings account product is a very simple, you know, it's a very simple um, 
20, 30,000 foot level point of view. The budget, all it is is, is, a, is a premium that earns interest, credits interest to your account. So what happened, the, the issue happened, well, okay, we understand the premium part, but we're going to now modify our contracts to where, you know, we have all different kinds of ways of crediting gains to your contracts now, you know, and these are complicated ways. These are not easy ways to understand how gains get yeah. credited. Yeah. You know, some are um, these index methodologies. Some are, you know, just direct investments, you know, with the variable annuities into the markets themselves that took off in the um, probably 1980s sometime, you know, was another. And then you have these other, um, these newer strategic um I call them, they call them Rylas, I guess. I haven't even seen one that are, um, uh, you know, kind of a hybrid between both of those. And it just, it's yeah. the complexity of how gains are, are attributed to your premiums has just gone up incredibly. I, I, and I can't even believe how, and there's so many variations on that theme. Including indices yeah, that it, never it's existed just, it's before. Just so, it's just so convoluted at this point. Um, I, I just think the industry has just gone way too, way too over that in some kind of drive to be this competition in asset managing that they feel like they have to do right. to get an edge on some business that they think they can garner from this. And I think all it's doing is causing a turnoff of consumers. Even some agents are just saying, this is just out of, this is way too much. You know, I, I can't do this. I, I can't, you know, you're getting, you're getting to a, uh, 50, 60 page applications and contracts like 50, 40, 50 pages long is ridiculous, you know, and, and, and all yeah. it is, it's, it may be well disclosed legally, all these things you have to do, but I can tell you right now is not well understood, well disclosed and well understood yeah. are two different things. And, yeah, and that's, that, 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 that's a lot of consumers struggle with this. And when there's yeah. a problem is currently we're seeing some of that right now is that there's a backlash. Well, you, you said this, and this is how the contract was supposed to work. And you showed me this and it's creating problems because there's some expectations of certain consumers that have these contracts that are not being met. And whether that was, you know, disclosed or well, not well disclosed, it certainly wasn't well understood. And I think that's also causing some problems, you know? So I, I don't, you know, I don't personally, go there with these kinds of contracts. That's why I stay with the older contracts. They're just, I think consumers are, um, understand those contracts easy. You know, it's, it's the contracts four or five pages long. It's a very, it's much more reasonable type of financial arrangement to consider. Yeah. I, I tell you, I tell you, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. Things have become ever more complicated and companies compete on the basic of basis of complication as if it's a differentiation, the latest and greatest whiz bang yeah. provision that's really hard for people to understand. It is. I think that there's a problem coming for the future around this. Well, thing. there might be. I mean, you know, there's a there's a demographic reality of women yeah. soon controlling virtually all point. of the investment right. assets available. And the complexity is not what they're looking right. for. They're looking for understandability, relationships, and confidence. And I think there's going to be a collision unless the industry makes some significant changes over the next right. three, four I years. totally agree with you. And then again, I saw that my whole career, you know, because again, because I worked so much in the divorce industry, you know, 
a lot of that resolves or a lot of that resolves on women's issues, you know, and divorcing, you know, they, they tend to have some bigger financial problems than men do typically. So that's how I kind of learned about that earlier on. But today, the way I see it, um, there actually is some appreciation, I think more by women than by men of some of the older contract forms. They're just easier to understand. They, um, uh, uh, the messaging, I think, is something they want. They, they want that. They don't, you know, they, they're going to spend time with their friends and their girlfriends and their grandchildren. You know, the whole retirement, the whole retirement scene is different, I think, for women. And there's a couple articles which we talked about earlier, you know, a few days ago, that points out that women look at this part of their lives much differently than men do, you know, because they're different. You know, their, their economic backgrounds are different from the day they're born, David. You know, they're dealing with society issues. Yeah. They're embedded that are discriminate, you know, women from men. And, and, and what happens to them? And, and you know, this is, and, and modern women probably might dispute this, but historically, and I think most women would agree that they're still behind the eight ball in a lot of ways when it comes to men issues. And so when they retire, there's they no feel question. the same issues are still there for them. It doesn't go away just because they were retiring, you know? Yeah. I would say there's a reason that after a husband passes, a widow in seven out of 10 cases fires the male advisor. There's good reason for that. Right. And I agree with that because, you know, the problem is the male advisor, you know, probably, you know, the man was, the man was deferred to because the man, you know, I'm just saying traditional roles here. So there's always exceptions was the breadwinner and, and had the assets, mostly retirement plan assets for the average person because they worked longer. Yeah. And um, they had the careers that women didn't have because the stability of men being in, allowed to be in the workforce, you know, with women not being in the workforce so long. And so the male financial advisors, you know, pretty much deferred to the man all the time, you know, and the woman was left, you know, I don't know. I mean, that was a big mistake, but I, again, you know, um, I don't think we really thought about that too much 10 years ago. I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, no, no. I, I don't no, think it was thought no. of, because, but now, you know, what you have now is this whole shift of assets that women are recognized that they're going to come into this actuarially they're they're on they're on stage to come into this because you know you know what happened what happens to men and, and that whole is a whole transition there that's going to happen david and i think that if you're in the advisory markets that you, you better you better start taking women's you better start learning something about women's issues you know women, Here's how successful. I say it. Otherwise, women Mary, are going to put up with it. They, I, they won't, you know? I, 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 t I tell advisors, I've written numerous articles and mentioned this in the articles where I tell advisors in the retirement income market, particularly, if you're not capable of creating authentic relationships with women where you have a sincere and complete appreciation of their values, goals, and objectives, if, if you can't listen, you might as well leave the business now because you have no future. Right. Well, you know, and a lot, you know, what the thing is, is it, well, obviously I do. I have, and that's the comment you get from everybody. Like, oh, I must have these relationships. Yeah. There's, the false, there's no, false sense no of security that they don't everywhere. have a good relationship. 
with the cup with the woman of the couple. It just doesn't even, even occur to them to even question that. And when they get when this comes up later on, they get, it's like a shock. Like, really? Oh my god! It, you know, it's, it's, they just can't believe that there was always this weak bond. There's always this weakness that had to do, and that accrued over years. You know, of working with the couple, that it was just so embedded in everything the body language, the words they used, you know, you know, how, you know, how they present themselves in front of women, how, how they, you know, I mean, it, it just, it was rife with defaults favorable to, to men, you know, Talk, yeah. golf, hunting. I mean, you know, really, I mean, women do those things, but these are all, there was just comments, just things that just, um, what maybe is, um, you know, women just sat there and, you know, and, um, you know, again, historically, you know, modern women are more didn't stupid. rock the boat. Didn't rock the and, boat. And that may not be yeah. happening now modernly, but we're not looking at those women. Those women are probably thirties and forties now. But women who are seventy and eighty now, the default there is still really, you know, to the male for the most part. And this is what advisors have been dealing with. Because the older people, seventies and eighties, are people who have yeah. the wealth in, in that generation. You know. So, let, let me let me make a shift in our discussion here because i know we, we don't have you know unlimited time you would agree with me certainly would agree that there's no financial vehicle on god's green earth like a guaranteed income annuity it does what nothing else does true there's many many younger financial advisors who've never implemented a guaranteed income annuity we went through a period recently of very yes. low interest rates and they were not even thought about or right. talked about. Yet they're uniquely valuable. Right. What would you say to a young financial advisor or insurance agent who's never personally interacted with a guaranteed income annuity? What would you say to him or her well, would... on how they should think about it and how they should explain well, What I think I would say to them is just... You know, explain what's 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 been going on when they started their careers Th this is what you were dealing with zero zero interest rates everything was very easy or relatively easy on the investment side so you never had to really worry about any of this stuff but but now you know things are changing okay so you know and if you want to stay you keep doing investment, you know, investment advising people, financial advising, estate financial advising, that you got to make some changes. And so um, I try to get them to uh, look at, um, you know, corporate. And now most of them, again, it's a business model issue, David. Um, so depending on the kind of annuity they might consider, um, they have some hope because there, there are some annuities, the savings account annuities that are a little bit more closely aligned to kind of what they're used to. So it isn't like a, a really big leap to consider. Okay, well, maybe I should consider yeah. that. Okay, things are changing and investment markets are unstable and the people are older and, and, and it's not a big leap for, for some of them to think about incorporating that kind of annuity. I think it's a bigger leap for them to incorporate a, a, a non-savings account annuity. That, that's a bigger leap for them. And, and again, that gets back to their, the business model. So, the, so there are avenues for people 
if they, if, if they feel up to it, that they can explore. On the savings account side for the deferred annuity world, there are things there that now are available to them they can take advantage of. And they may want to think of doing that because the last 15 or 20 years was an anomaly. You know, and it's hard to explain it to people because that's all you've known in your entire career. Even consumers, it's hard to explain that to consumers. If zero percent interest rates is all you've ever known, it's very hard. Right. It's very hard to what's the reality here? Well, the reality is that this was just a blip historically, and now we're getting back to more normal times. But to you, the normal one of the advantages of being old—that was normal for you, you know. You know, one of the advantages of being older is that you have a memory right. of things that were not just like they've been right. recently, you know. And there's a real phenomenon in recency bias. People tend to be prejudiced toward more right. recent events in their thinking. But, you know, it, truth is, you know, things are really not up, 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 up for 14 right. years, except very, very rarely. But that, that's been people's experiences, you know, advisors and also right. client, consumers. So this is a very, yeah. very big, I, I, this is a very big shakeout. It's a very big reality is is about to be introduced itself and so i think if people are can say to it that they need to be a little bit more nimble here and kind of how they perspective and and i try to just just be, try to be more reasonable so you know and reasonableness includes um these kinds of con products contracts because it's a way of mitigating some problems so um you know I think that has a lot to do with it. And if you just, you know, reasonably speaking, you know, you're going to have to include some of these things because you don't, it's not going to be the way it was, you know, 15 years ago, over the last 15 years. So, to be reasonable, so give me some real, real life situations and real world advantages of moving money into a SPIA. Right. Now, now I talk about those all the time and, and pension. That's, that's my big thing. My big message. Um, Cause I think it's under messaged and for a lot of different reasons it's under messaged. But again, it gets to the, the levels of, of what you think safe is. So for most people, safe is some kind of definition of the financial markets. You know, I'm safe from volatility. I'm safe from credit. But, you know, that's a very extremely narrow definition historically. Being safe means mm -hmm. not just being safe in the markets. Being safe means being safe from things that happen to you personally not just what happens to financial markets. Yeah. So like I go back to the earthquake, you know, when people lost their shirts. Well, what did I see? People who had pensions, they were fortunate enough to have pensions, and immediate annuities, well, they got to keep those. Everyone else, they had savings accounts, deferred annuities, whole life, whatever they had. A lot of it, David, just surrendered, lapsed out. They lost all that wealth yeah. that could have produced a future income if they have able to maintain it because what was happening to them personally in the present circumstances, they were not able to preserve that, but yet they had this pension, this nudie right. that did it for them. So that's when I get back to these critical things. I talk about, um, you know, what happened, um, in Fort St. Myers, I talk about what happened to other people in the, in the Medicare industry who are left holding the bag and they've lost their wealth, you know, and before they died and we way before they got really old, maybe 60, 60 years old, and they lost their wealth at 65 because they had an event that happened to them that sucked up their current assets 
you know, and, and it left them with a new standards of living because they didn't have enough future, they didn't have enough future wealth they could rely upon that would be paid to them. Now, this is a, a very interesting message. It's a pension message and it's an insurance message. And that doesn't go over very well with people or advisors because, because why? Because people always say, well, that's insurance. I don't need insurance. You know, nothing happens to me. <laughs> you know, I don't need to have these things. This will never happen to me, yeah. Gary. You know, <laughs> the next thing you know, you're reading about them in the paper. You know, this just happened. So these are all, it's a very hard message. And that's why insurance is so difficult to deal with people because it's very hard. It's kind of a, a very hard, it brings them to reality. And no one really wants to go there, David. It's a very hard mess. And that's why selling insurance, any kind of insurance, not just annuities, disability, life, accident, health, all that stuff is very difficult because it really, a lot of it depends upon, well, how reasonable is, is, is the client? If the, the client's a reasonable person. And, think, well, and I, I, believe it's going, I believe it's going to get easier, Gary, as women become more of the decision makers. Right. And again, and again, just back to our comments earlier, women are, because their their histories are, are, are more interested in insurance than men are. Because they've never had, they don't, they, they, they want to preserve, you know, their idea is to preserve things. Their idea isn't to get rich. Right. Their idea is to make sure they have good lives and they, they're in their women are more insurance minded than men are traditionally. So this gets back to not only just annuities, but everything else, basically. And, um, you I know, agree. this is just part of their makeup, when, David, you know, let's have to recognize that when you're dealing with women, they just, you know, I want to, I want to shift a, our, our direction here to a couple of questions. If I somehow could give you through this screen, a magic wand, and you could wave this wand, and in one swoop, you could affect any change at all in the world of money, financial services, insurance, investment management, anywhere in the world of money. You can make any change right. instantly. What would it be? Well, actually, if I could do anything at all, I, I would, I would make it, I would make it um, easier and provide more incentives for people to buy, you know, defined benefit. I'd bring back defined benefit again somehow. I would um, uh, bring back his older contract forms, and you'd have to make a lot of changes, you know, in, in various things, mm -hmm. you know, maybe tax incentives, maybe you know, compensation issues. Bring back maybe some legal issues to bring back, but I, you know, it could be done. But society, but you'd have to want to move as a society, you know, to do that type of thing, you know, to even entertain that idea. I think people, in my general opinion, is people are better protected overall. When I like, for example, you had Social Security coming in. I, I think if you just you know double it, you know, try try to increase your, yeah. your future wealth, and I think the more of that you have versus your savings account to bring things back more into balance. See, everything's just one sided now. There's no more right. future income. There's no more. Yeah, it's, it's a too risk. Much it's a risk so I would try to be, get more of an even keel. Yeah. You know, if, I, if I just wave a wand, just make it even keel somehow, I think people would be much better off society wise, protection wise, income wise, 70s to 80s, yeah. if they had more checks coming in the mail. And that's well, I think there'd be less balance, stress in society, you know, more confidence among people, less stress there'd in be society. A lot more stress for sure. in society. Yes. Well, yeah, that was a, 
let, let me ask you another question. You know, you're a, an annuity expert, the maestro, the author, the spear man, king of geeks, as I once right. called you in an article. Well, they were around at one time. Um, if you weren't this, say you took another path, so you could be. I think about that anything. often, David. You could be. The, you, could be the, you could be a. You know the world's greatest lion yeah. tamer, or a, you know the world the world's best right. actor. You could be a parachutist. Yeah. You could be a you know a Nobel Prize winning chemist. If you're going to be something else, what would it be? Well, you know, as a kid, you know, I had a huge. I think I missed my calling. Actually, I, I think I had a huge interest because <laughs> I read a lot. Everyone read a lot. So I had a huge interest in, in archaeology. And I, as a very young kid, you know, I was fascinated with, you know, dinosaur and all that type of thing. Kids are today, even today. But um, I think if I could do something differently. I probably would take maybe a career along that way, you know, where um, I'd be out and about more. And, um, you know, I was always interested in, like, sciences, you know, um, biology, botany. I was a big interest in botany mm -hmm. where I could uh, – uh, so I didn't ever pursue that. Um, mainly, this is mainly because of the experience I had earlier, you know, and I grew up on a farm. My whole, whole big idea when I got out of college was what I really wanted to do was go to Chicago and, and work on one of the exchanges, one of the, one of the commodities exchanges. That's what I really mm -hmm. wanted to do. But in 81, there just there weren't any jobs. There's nothing was happening there. Because that was a whole new market at the time. Chicago was just developing futures. Yeah. You know, it's a whole big development area. And um, that never happened. Um, so I ended up staying in California. But um, so I'm going to answer the question: botanist. Is yeah, that I, I, would, I would enjoy or, or archaeologist. Enjoyed that archaeology and botany. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I would. Yeah. I probably would have got a. I still. I still read a lot about that. Actually, you know. So I'm a yeah. big, big reader of history. F so. Final okay. question: Imagine your own retirement <laughs> in its most ideal perfect iteration where are you and what are you doing oh man i might have to edit this from the thing <laughs> i don't know my own no retirement editing. oh my god well i don't really see myself you know i, I have a hard time seeing my I'm, I'm like the average person i think who's maybe i'm 65 and honestly i haven't really personally honestly i haven't really come to terms with that concept yet Imagine. This is an imagination <laughs> question. Well, if I could retire, if I wanted to retire, what, what, I don't understand. If I could. So if you could, wanted to retire and you had a vision of the oh, perfect retirement, vision. the most ideal oh, okay. retirement, where would you be and what would you oh, be doing? I, most likely, I would not be in this country. It'd be, I mean, I've looked seriously about living overseas, so I probably would live overseas somewhere. Um, I think I would. Like where? Um, well, the number one pick so far is Malta. So that's, mm -hmm. one that, that's number one on the list so far right now. So I'd be very happy to live there in a small, quiet area, you know, very. Um, and what would you be doing uh, in Malta? I'd probably be, um, be working part time at, you know, one of the tourist areas or I'd be hiking around or the, the big fishing industry there. I'd be, um, you know, on a boat or something. I'm a, I'm a big I'm a big hiker. I had my knee fixed, so I can I can hike now. So I, I would be hiking, exploring around, and then because it's centralization location, um, everything is very close. You know, Italy, yeah, Italy's there. The North Africa is there. 
Gary, why Malta of of all the places why that you Malta? can imagine being? Because uh, they have an excellent mm-hmm. excellent healthcare system. That was like number one. Mm-hmm. Two is that mm-hmm. it doesn't snow. <laughs> Malta. <laughs> so you got Mediterranean weather all year round, pretty much. Yeah. And it's a small community. And it's, it's its own nation. You know, um, um, most of their revenues come from um, you know. Um, tourists and um there's a fishing industry but it's, it's pretty it's pretty slow you know and um, um there's a small island that's north of malta it's part of the multi-chain chain. so um i probably would live there maybe um, you can't access malta only by boat there's no roads between that particular island and malta but um that would be it probably i think i would just content myself to live among the community and do local things and see local people and Maybe once in a while, come to these other places. Maybe that are close by, and that would be it. I think. I don't think I'd be doing anything else than that. I, I have two kids; they all have their own lives. You know, one's in Chicago, and one's in uh, New York, and one's in uh, San Francisco. So, big city people, and they can come visit me, or I can go visit them and get the big city once in a while if I want to do that. But I think that's probably it, David. I think that's what I would do. I think I would be content just to do that. Um, I probably could afford that kind of lifestyle if I wanted to do it, you know? So um, sure. at this point. Well, that that's a unique answer. No one has ever told me they'd, they'd retire in Malta, but yeah, I researched it pretty, pretty heavily. Good. I mean, I, they got, um, you'd be surprised. They have, um, I mean, one of the big thing is that people talk about going overseas. One thing they don't ever think about, well, what's the healthcare? Cause I'm older now. And right. some of these places look real attractive, but you know what? Yeah. If I'm over there, I'd want to be coming back here. For, for medical treatment. <laughs> I don't want to stay, but Malta is sure. pretty, pretty sophisticated systems they have there for healthcare, which I'm really happy to hear about, you know? So. Have you been? No, I'll probably be out this year. reading I, about I think, it. I probably, I'm going to make a trip probably out this year sometime. We'll see what happens. But yeah, I'll go there a couple of times before I'm able to see what yeah. it's like, you know? So I'm I getting, I had a couple other ones on the list also, but I don't really see myself staying in the States, David. I, I don't see that happening. So unless something, unless something other tragic, something happens tragically, I might have to. But barring that, I would probably move overseas. So you know. Well, after you visit Malta, All let right. me know if it uh, measure, measured up to your expectations. And for now, I want to say thank you. It's been a, a pretty fascinating okay. conversation right, with you, Gary. Very good. No, it went pretty smooth. I uh, thank you for thank you for being on the podcast and audience. Thank you for viewing and listening. I think this is only episode number oh, four wow. in our short short podcast history. Okay. So please stay tuned. Uh, give us a like um, and right, thank you. Thanks right. for thanks thank for you. checking in. You've been listening to the Outstanding Advisor Podcast. If you would like to be featured on the podcast, tell us why you are an outstanding financial advisor with an interesting story to tell. Send an email to oadvisorpodcast at gmail.com. That's oadvisorpodcast at gmail.com. And thanks for listening.